There is still a weird echo. Are we, are we good? Okay. All right, I'm gonna give this a try, folks. Good morning and welcome to the February 28th meeting of the San Francisco County Transportation Authority Board. I am Raphael Mandelman. I serve as chair of this board. Our vice chair is Mirna Melgar. I want to thank Kalina Mendoza from SFGovTV and um, also thank our clerk, Elijah Saunders. Mr. Clerk, welcome back to your chair and will you please call the roll? Yes, Chair. Commissioner Chan? Present. Chan present. Commissioner Dorsey? Dorsey present, Commissioner Guardia. Guardia present, Commissioner Mandelman. Present. Mandelman present, Commissioner Melgar. Melgar absent, Commissioner Peskin. Present. Peskin present, Commissioner Preston. Preston present, Commissioner Ronan. Ronan absent, Commissioner Safai. He's the problem. <laughs> Asha. <laughs> Safai absent, Commissioner <laughs> Stephanie. Stephanie present, Commissioner Walton. Walton present, Chair, we have quorum. Walton present, Chair. Oh, tech folks. Up. Are we good? Super, Supervisor Safai is here as well, oh. or Commissioner Safai, sorry. Thank you, Commissioner Safai. You must mute yourself when you are not on because something weird is happening with our, um, with our audio. Uh, all right, thank you, Mr. Clerk, and I think you have a public comment announcement. I do. Thank you, Chair. For members of the public interested in participating in this board meeting, we welcome your attendance here in person in the Legislative Chamber, Room 250 in City Hall. Chamber, room 250. Or you may watch cable channel 26 or 99, depending on your provider, or stream the meeting live at www.sfgovtv.org. For those wishing to make public comment remotely, the best way to do so is by dialing 415-655-0001 and when prompted, entering access code 2486-525-3998 and then press pound and pound again. You'll be able to listen to the meeting in real time. When public comment is called for the item you wish to speak on, press star 3 to be added to the queue to speak. Do not press star 3 again or you'll be removed from the queue. When the system says your line is unmuted, the live operator will advise that you will be allowed two minutes to speak. When your two minutes are up, we will move on to the next caller. Calls will be taken in the order in which they are received. Best practices are to speak slowly, clearly, and turn down the volume of any televisions or radios around you. Public comment for items on this agenda will be taken first from members of the public and attendants in the legislative chamber, and then afterwards from the remote speaker's queue on the telephone line. Thank you. Thank you, Clerk Saunders. As chair, I'm going to invoke Rule 3.26 from our Rules of Order to limit total public comment per item to 30 minutes for today's meeting. Uh, it's my intention to give every speaker two minutes to speak on each item unless I un otherwise indicate. Um, and with that, Mr. Clerk, would you please call the next item? Item two, Chair's Report. This is an information item. Uh, that's me. Um, colleagues, I am pleased to share that we have two pieces of good news this month on regional transportation funding. First, Caltrain received a $367 million grant from the State Transit Intercity Rail Capital Program, or TIRCP, which combined with $43 million in federal grants from December completes the Caltrain Electrification Project's funding plan. And that's, of course, very welcome news. Um, and BART, uh, and other Bay Area agencies also receive significant grants for high priority projects in the region, um, with BART getting $250 million for uh, core capacity. So uh, we want to thank very much Secretary Tokes Omishakin and, um, and the California State Transportation Agency for their support. 
Uh, <clears throat> we also have the happy news that the California Supreme Court upheld Regional Measure 3, the 2018 voter-approved bridge toll program that funds about $4.5 billion in Bay Area transportation improvements, including the downtown rail extension, now called the Portal, Muni Fleet expansion and facilities, BART core capacity expansion cars, a ferry enhancement program, and many other local and regional infrastructure projects. Both the TIRCP and RM3 funds allow us to leverage our Prop L transportation sales tax funds to deliver major transit projects to the public, supporting economic recovery and regional connectivity while addressing climate. Um, the Welcome Vice Chair Melgar. Um, the RM3 ruling also came just in time to confirm the inclusion of $325 million in RM3 funds for uh, the portal in the TJPA's application to enter the next engineering phase of the Federal Transit Administration's Capital Investment Grant CIG program. Um, thank you to G TJPA and all the six-party MOU partners, including our TA staff, on meeting this major milestone. We all know it takes a lot of hard work to prepare the project and position it to seek over $3 billion in federal funding later this year. And as I indicated at the TJPA meeting earlier this month, we're keen to see this partnership continue through the FTA New Start's submittal this August and beyond, and the record should show that Commissioner Ronan has joined us. As we celebrate the recent capital grants, we also know that we have pressing issues on the operating side for many local and regional transit systems. And I want to thank our SFMTA director, uh, Jeff Tumlin, and staff from MTC, BART, and Caltrain um, for being here today for our transit hearing later this morning. I anticipate a robust discussion about the needs of our major systems and how we can potentially collaborate across the Bay Area and state to stabilize and strengthen transit for the long run. Um, and with that, I conclude my remarks. And Mr. Clerk, we should open this item for public comment. If there's anyone in the chamber who would like to speak on um, item two, please come forward. And if not, let's see if we have any remote public comment. Do we have any remote public comment? Phone operator, I think you may be muted. Oh dear, we are alone in the world. Phone operator, are you with us? I take a three-minute recess. All right, we're going to take a, uh, a four-minute recess, and we will reconvene at 10.15.
SFGovTV, San Francisco Government Television. All right, we are reconvening, um, and I believe we were uh, attempting to take public comment on the chair's report, and we were going to see if we had remote public comment, so let's see if we have remote public comment on item two. Okay, it looks like we have one caller for item two. One, all right, caller, you have two minutes for your public comment. Oh, I, 
You can unraise my hand. Oh, okay. <laughs> that was you. All right. So no more public comment for item two. All right. <laughs> public comment on item two is closed. Uh, Mr. Clerk, could you please call item three? Item three, executive director's report. This is an information item. Director Chang. And good morning, commissioners. Good morning. Um, Building on the good news that Chair mentioned about our various federal grants and state grants, on the transit side, I'm pleased to also report that the USDOT announced um, several grants, including two for San Francisco for the Safe Streets and Roads for All program. This is a street safety uh, federal program funded by the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law. Um, in the first of two awards, the SFMTA received $17 million to implement the Western Edition Community-Based Transportation Plan, um, and this was funded through our Prop K Neighborhood Transportation Program, as well as the Metropolitan Transportation Commission's uh, grant program, this uh, Community-Based Transportation Plan. So it's really nice to see uh, significant implementation funding going toward these plans. Uh, for that neighborhood. And the second award was to ourselves, the Transportation Authority, for our Vision Zero Freeway Ramp Intersection Safety Study Phase 3. Um, this continues our work at the uh, base of ramps where the freeway touches down onto our local street network, where it's often uh, challenging to, to pedestrians and, and bicyclists uh, that will be using $360,000 of federal funding for a set of uh, ramps throughout the city. Um, we do anticipate coming back to you for a local match from Prop L in the next few months, um, and we'll keep you posted on both of these projects. Moving on, uh, at the state level, uh, ourselves and the, our partners at the SFMTA have been weighing in on the issue of autonomy and autonomous vehicle regulation um, at the California PUC Public Utilities Commission as well as the Department of Motor Vehicles. Um, last month, we jointly filed comment letters uh, to the CPUC protesting permit requests by both uh, the two main companies, Cruise and Waymo, to offer autonomous uh, passenger services throughout San Francisco 24 hours a day with unlimited uh, fleet size restrictions. Uh, we do and have supported deployment for both companies and, and absolutely believe that this will eventually um, be uh, broad-based and, and grow within San Francisco and throughout the state. However, uh, currently we believe that this is a, a very large step and would have been advocating for a more incremental approach where expansion of permitted activities tracks with on-street conditions um, so that we can all see that this is being rolled out safely and reliably. Um, in addition, at the California Department of Motor Vehicles, we participated in a workshop regarding uh, the updating of state regulations for heavy and light-duty autonomous vehicles. This was the first such hit hearing that the DMV had held since 2015 when they first promulgated uh, regulations enabling testing and deployment in California. Uh, so that we really appreciated the ability to participate in that and again, called uh, for more data to uh, document the activities in the state, including in San Francisco, which is the only place where we do see driverless uh, deployments at the moment, commercial deployments, and also advocating for uh, permits to be awarded incrementally, as I mentioned previously. So we'll keep you posted on that, that set of topics uh, throughout the year. 
Turning to local issues, last night I was pleased to join Supervisor Melgar, Commissioner Melgar, and also our director of SFMTA, Jeff Tumlin, who's also just arrived here this morning, um, as we can, uh, participated in the District 7 Town Hall that uh, Supervisor can, um, organized, and this was in the inner sunset, uh, met with a room full of community members and heard some really great feedback and robust input on uh, several issues ranging from pedestrian safety, transit reliability, parking and enforcement needs, as well as school transportation access. So we'll continue to be working uh, with that community and the supervisor, of course, uh, to respond to that feedback that we heard. In addition, the Ocean Avenue Safety and Circulation Action Plan held its fifth meeting. This is the work the working group, or the task force, excuse me, that has been meeting, that's been convened by both District 7 and 11 offices. Um, this, again, was a meeting to really try to wrap up some of the top recommendations emerging from this effort, and uh, the group decided to uh, recommend prioritizing bike connectivity, an east-west bike connection between Balboa Park Station and Uniprocera. Um, among other improvements, and so you'll be seeing this come forward in the next few months um, as we prepare about five projects of uh, small to medium to larger sizes and uh, prepare those for uh, completion um, of the plan in the spring of 2023. So now I also would like to update you on some project delivery uh, milestones. We want to congratulate uh, the Presidio Trust on its Presidio shuttle. Uh, this was funded by our Transportation for Clean Air, that's our air district funds. Um, the Presidio Trust unveiled its first battery electric bus, which will join the rest of the Presidio shuttle fleet, offering rides um, that are free to and from uh, their site in the Presidio, from downtown, the southern hills route around the park. Um, the bus will go into operation uh, I believe right, right, right away in late February. Uh, we provided $250,000 again from our air district funds and we were pleased to join the Federal Highway Administration and the trust folks there as they promote clean transportation throughout the park and the city. Um, we look forward to expansion of that fleet. Next, we have Franklin Street. So I know this is of importance to Commissioner Stephanie who advocated for this project. It's a quick build that is now open for use um, over on Franklin between Lombard and Broadway. So thank you to SFMTA for constructing this very quickly. Um, and this was begun just uh, less than a year ago. We, um, of course, saw the uh, tragic fatality there by Sherman Elementary. So the safety improvements are aimed at reducing vehicle speeds uh, and the number of conflicts between uh, motorists and, and, and pedestrians. The, feature, the features include painted safety zones, slow turn wedges, daylighting, and right turn on red restrictions. Um, and again, we'll, uh, we're pleased to provide Prop K and TNC tax uh, Prop D funds toward this project. Turning now to one more update on Better Market Street. Construction has begun on the uh, project that is focused between 5th and 8th Streets. The Better Market Street project will uh, be upgrading the traffic signals, repaving curb lanes, installing ADA-compliant curb ramps, and providing new streetscape improvements uh, in this three-block section. Bicycle lanes will remain open in the peak direction during peak hours. However, detours will be in effect during regular construction hours to ensure the safety of all road users. Uh, the construction team has installed signage throughout the area to guide uh, 
guide cyclists and other road users um, about this project. And now turning to the management and admin side, um, we were pleased to join a TRB AV forum and ITS America's committee. We have several uh, conferences and focused um, discussions, including tomorrow. We're uh, helping to ho host an AV conference here at the, the Marriott. So there's just a lot of activity, and it's really great to see conferences coming back to San Francisco. We look forward to hosting uh, later this year the self-help counties. A coalition focused on the future conference as well in October um, and definitely we'll keep you posted on those activities as, as we go. Finally we want to mention the procurement series outreach events that we've been holding with a focus on small businesses. Thank you to Lily Yu and Cynthia Fong, our finance deputy, who hosted on February 7th and 16th some uh, small business outreach events. Uh, procurement series with members of the Business Outreach Committee. It's a regional multi-agency agency consortium of approximately 26 Bay Area transportation agencies with a common goal to assist small disadvantaged and local firms doing business with Bay Area transportation agencies. Approximately 80 people attended the February 7th professional services event and about 40 folks uh, attended the February 16th construction event. And topics ranged from insurance and bonding requirements um, and to, to how to do bid and cost estimation and other, uh, other tips. So we definitely look forward to more partnerships and, um, and good outcomes in that regard as a result of these events. Uh, last but not least, I'd like to congratulate the new executive director of the Metropolitan Transportation Commission and ABAG, Andy Vermeer, Andrew Vermeer, uh, who was appointed this week by the MTC as its next executive director. Uh, the position, of course, covers a, a range of activities, um, even within MTC, ranging from uh, the Bay Area Toll Authority and Bay Area Infrastructure Finance um, Agency. Uh, we've all been working for years with Andy and really uh, look forward to continuing the collaboration under his leadership with the agencies and offer him, our, offer him our hearty congratulations and best wishes. With that, I'm happy to take any questions. Uh, thank you, Director Chang. Commissioner Preston. Thank you, Chair Mandelman, uh, and thank you, Director Chang, for the, the uh, report and all the work. And I, I just wanted to briefly comment on the um, the funds that were received uh, that you just gave the report on for the Western edition uh, over 17 million dollars um, and really wanted to just recognize all the work that that went into securing that and thank the uh, director Tomlin and uh, and the MTA and his his team uh, as well as yours for the advocacy on that and and also just recognize that um, that the origins of that work that that is going to fund was a process that that uh, was completed in 2017 uh, a community-led process with deep engagement in the Western Edition resulting as you mentioned the, the Western Edition uh, community-based transportation plan in 2017 and my understanding from my meetings with uh, director Tomlin and MTA is that this this funding from the federal government will now actually enable us to complete um, all of the recommendations of that plan. So this is really um, a huge thing for the Western Edition that originated with 
community activists and leaders uh, coming to the table to develop this plan. And I'm just really, I think we're all thrilled that those funds have come through. I, I did wanna name just a handful of folks who are particularly involved and who worked with us back in September when we did our uh, the, the letter of support from our office with community leaders um, and those Western Edition uh, community organizations are um, the new Community Leadership Foundation, NCLF, and in particular Majid uh, Crawford wanted to recognize his leadership on this. Uh, the Boys and Girls Club of San Francisco, San Francisco Housing Development Corporation, Mo Magic, Collective Impact, San Francisco Rebels, uh, and the Village Project. Uh, who were all extremely active in the fall in, in uh, sharing the support uh, for these funds. So it, this is going to um, result in some long overdue improvements, traffic signal upgrades extensively, quick build projects, um, speed reduction program, especially with our expanded power now from the, from the state to actually reduce speeds um, in some high injury corridors in particular. Um, in the Western Edition. So thank you for your work on this. Thanks to the MTA and especially thanks to all the community groups uh, who, who uh, pushed so hard for this. Uh, and also last, <laughs> lastly to uh, Preston Kilgore, my legislative aide who heads up our transportation work and was very much uh, a part of pushing this all forward. And I should also probably close with thanks to the folks who sent us the money. So the <laughs> Department <laughs> of Transportation very much appreciate these funds. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Commissioner Preston. And with that, we should open this item to public comment. If there are any members of the public in the chamber who'd like to come forward, please do. And seeing none, let's see if we have any remote public comment on the executive director's report. Checking for public comment. There is no public comment. All right, public comment on item three is closed. Mr. Clerk, could you please call item four? Item four, approve the minutes of the February 14th, 2023 meeting. This is an action item. I do not see any comments or questions from colleagues, so let's open the minutes to public comment. If, again, if there's anyone in the chamber, please come forward. And if not, let's see if we have remote public comment on the minutes. Checking for public comment. No public comment on item four. All right, uh, public comment on item four is closed. Is there a motion to approve item four of the minutes? Moved by Preston, is there a second? Seconded by Walton. Uh, Mr. Clerk, please call the roll. On the motion to approve the minutes, Commissioner Chan? Aye. Chan, aye. Commissioner Dorsey? Aye. Dorsey, aye. Commissioner Engardio? Aye. Guardio, aye. Commissioner Manaman? Aye. Manaman, aye. Commissioner Melgar? Aye. Melgar, aye. Commissioner Peskin? Aye. Peskin, aye. Commissioner Preston? Aye. Preston, aye. Commissioner Ronan? Ronan, aye. Commissioner Safai? Aye. Safai, aye. Commissioner Stephanie? Aye. Stephanie, aye. Commissioner Walton? Aye. Walton, aye. There are 11 ayes. The minutes are approved. All right. Thank you. Please call items 5 through 9, our consent agenda. Items 5 through 9 comprise the consent agenda. Staff is not planning to present on these items, but is available for questions. Also, we have received several public comments on items 6, which are posted to the website. Thank you, Mr. Clerk. Um, is there a motion to approve the consent agenda? Moved by Melgar, seconded by Peskin. Uh, please call the roll. On the motion to approve the consent agenda, Commissioner Chan? Aye. Chan, aye. Commissioner Dorsey? Aye. Dorsey, aye. Commissioner Engardio? Engardio, aye. Commissioner Mandelman? Aye. Mandelman, aye. Commissioner Melgar? Aye. Melgar, aye. Commissioner Peskin? Aye. Peskin, aye. Commissioner Preston? Aye. 
Preston, aye. Commissioner Ronan? Ronan, aye. Commissioner Safai? Aye. Safai, aye. Commissioner Stephanie? Aye. Stephanie, aye. Commissioner Walton? Walton, aye. There are 11 ayes. The consent agenda is approved. Thank you, Mr. Clerk. Could you please call item 10? Yes. Item 10, Metropolitan Transportation Commission's Transit Regional Network Management Update. This is an information item. Okay. Um, Thank you for calling the item. I want to um, give a little bit of credit for this. This item and the next um, are anticipated to be opportunities for us to have kind of longer conversations about um, important transportation issues uh, facing San Francisco. We're likely to do more of these, I think, and I believe it was um, uh, uh, former chair and vice chair Peskin who suggested that it might be good um, to create space um, in this body for some deep dives into um, transportation, big transportation issues um, that we're gonna be dealing with for a while. So um, with that on item 10, the Metropolitan Transportation Commission's Transit Regional Network Management Update, I think we have, well, I see that we have uh, Director Chang and also um, I believe Jeff Tumlin is gonna be. Thank you, Chair. Yeah. Um, real quick, before we hand it off to our guest speakers, which we really appreciate their um, joining us for these two topics, I just wanted to recognize that this is a really big topic of, of very um, significant importance to San Francisco. Uh, this work began on transit sort of uh, policy and funding and sustainability through the Seamless Transit Initiative, sponsored by uh, nonprofit advocacy groups, um, as well as some of our state assembly members, Chu and, and others, since then, leading to the MTC taking this up in collaboration with operators throughout the region uh, through the Transit Transformative Action Plan. Um, again, San Francisco uh, cares deeply about this. We account for over two-thirds of transit trips in the region. Um, Muni alone, you'll hear later, carries over uh, half the region's low-income transit riders. Uh, we'll note that this work does lift up policy at the regional level at a critical time, um, as, of course, many operators are facing the fiscal cliff that you've been seeing in the news and we'll hear about today, um, as well as a need to fundamentally rethink the structure of transit funding, uh, perhaps away from fares and toward other sources. So again, we don't want to echo the chair and thanking staff from MTC, BART, Caltrain, uh, SFMTA Muni, um, and I'll hand it now over to, I believe, uh, Liz Bryson from SFMTA, and at the next item, I believe Director Tumlin will give some opening remarks uh, in a related topic. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, Tilly. Uh, good morning, Chair Mandelman and board members. Uh, Liz Bryson, I'm SFMTA's Long Range Transit Corridor Planning Manager in the Transit Division. And uh, the reason for the update today on regional network management is that last week at the MTC Commission, there was an approval action to approve putting forward this new network management framework, which really refers to some changes in governance for how the Bay Area's many transit agencies um, coordinate on regional transit issues. So I'm gonna be giving a few slides that set a little bit of San Francisco specific context as well as transit operator context and then hand it over to my colleague Shruti Hari from the MTC to go through the recommendations. Uh, so first, a little bit about the origin of this work. Uh, many of you are probably familiar with the uh, MTC's Blue Ribbon Task Force that was uh, convened during the early days of the COVID pandemic. Um, it had some near-term focus on just 
how to, how to deal with the reality of COVID when it first was coming to be and uh, distributing some of the federal relief funds. Uh, but then the task force really shifted its focus uh, uh, to be more on recovery and the idea of transformation and that we really needed to re-envision how transit works um, in light of everything that's changed. And so that task force put together what's called the Bay Area Transit Transformation Action Plan uh, that contains 27 near-term actions to reshape the region's transit system into a more connected, efficient, and user-focused um, network. Thank you. Um, and so um, within those uh, 27 near-term actions was a very uh, specific focus on uh, advancing what's called a regional network management study. Uh, that would come up with uh, a set of recommendations for how the Bay Area's uh, different transit agencies could be governed as a unified network to unlock benefits for uh, transit riders um, and the region. There were five main outcomes envisioned through the plan um, that ranged from uh, providing simpler, more consistent fares and payment improving customer information and wayfinding, uh, managing the transit network as a unified system, uh, improving accessibility um, of the system, as well as using resources more efficiently. And the, the network management value proposition that was that absent some change in governance, it will, would be harder to make progress on these outcomes. Uh, one other point of context I wanted to share is that uh, the network management recommendations that have moved forward really formalize a level of collaboration that um, began um, as an outgrowth of the COVID pandemic. Um, you may or may not know that the general managers of all of the large transit operators, as well as representatives from the small operators, meet every week um, to share best practices and to coordinate uh, relief and uh, other items during this important and challenging time. Um, and through that coordination, we've been able to make uh, pretty exciting progress on some of the outcomes envisioned in the transit action plan. Um, and one thing in particular that we kind of honed through this work that's very relevant to the network management approach moving forward is that um, we now uh, partner with MTC in a different way when we do regional transit initiatives. Um, we essentially take a staff person from the MTC and pair them with a staff person from one of the transit operators that serve as a liaison of all operators, and then together they co-lead the effort. And that really allows for uh, the best of both worlds of someone from MTC who can bring the big picture regional vision to the work, as, as well as someone who has been in the trenches and understands some of the operating challenges and contexts that transit operators face when trying to put forward um, new regional transit uh, initiatives. Um, I did just want to touch on some of the recent transit coordination wins. Um, I did mention this weekly general managers meeting. Um, an example of what we've been able to do uh, through those meetings right now, we're very focused on coordinating funding advocacy, which I know is relevant to, to the next item on the agenda. And one example of that is we're uh, currently very focused on collectively advocating for uh, more operating dollars from the state. Uh, with respect to fare integration, uh, you may be familiar with the Clipper Bay Pass pilot that launched last year and provides unlimited uh, transit passes uh, to people from select institutions. Uh, and that will allow the region to study the impacts uh, of uh, an all system transit pass with the potential to do something bigger in the future based on what we learn. Um, there's also the uh, Muni and Samtrans Route 122 pilot that allows the Muni Pass to be accepted on part of Samtrans Route 122 in San Francisco. 
Um, we also made some big uh, headways uh, as it relates to service reciprocity um, in that uh, we eliminated regional restrictions on local routes. So now someone who wants to travel within San Francisco uh, on a Golden Gate Transit or SamTrans bus are able to do that, and that was something that was not previously possible. Uh, with respect to network legibility, uh, we recently um, worked with Golden Gate Transit to renumber uh, their Route 30 to become Route 130 so that it's not duplicative with Muni's 30 Stockton. Um, and we've also installed station wayfinding upgrades at several of the um, Muni metro stations such as Castro Church and Powell. Um, finally, while it's probably one of the more difficult ones, uh, we have made efforts to better coordinate schedule changes across the different transit operators, essentially pivoting off of a big regional schedule change such as BART and having all the other operators try to line up their signups to, to match that one so that we can make it as um, seamless as possible for transit riders using more than one system. Oh, and so the last bit of context before I hand it over to Shruti is just that um, MTC really had a hard job in doing this work um, when the, the stakeholder group for this was first convened. There was pretty radically different visions of how regional network management should work among the different stakeholders involved. And so uh, com compromises had to be made in order to reach consensus, but I can say that the SFMTA staff are uh, supportive of what's moving forward at this point. And so with that, I'll hand it over to Shruti. Thank you, Liz. Uh, good morning, Chair Mandelman and board members. I'm Shruti Hari from MTC. Firstly, thank you for the opportunity to walk through the regional network management framework with you all today. So Liz did a great job of providing the essential context and uh, background leading up to this endeavor. And it was in late 2021 when the MTC Commission authorized a regional network management evaluation. Now, the purpose of this effort was to identify a feasible, fundable governance framework to coordinate regional transit in the Bay Area. And the overarching goal here was to achieve a more integrated, more customer-centric regional transit system for Bay Area commuters that would not only boost ridership across all the transit agencies, but curb the growth of vehicle miles traveled in our region. And given that transit is intricately linked to air quality, equity, as well as the interplay between transportation and land use, this work is also foundational to achieving our regional sustainability goals. Now, to support this effort and ensure that key stakeholders were involved in this process, MTC convened a 14-member network management advisory group to guide this process. And the advisory group included seven transit agency general manager representatives and seven stakeholder representatives that are up on the slide today. And this group was intentionally constructed to help provide a wide range of perspectives and inputs from the various stakeholder groups. The advisory group met eight times from January through December 2022 and was highly involved in this effort. They also expressed strong support for the final recommendations coming out of this work that I'll be walking through with you all today. Uh, I would like to take this opportunity to thank the advisory group members for their significant contributions throughout this process. Next slide, please. Great. So obviously a lot of work went into this analysis, but I'll focus on the key elements of building blocks of the regional network management or RNM framework over the next few slides. These include the mission and vision, the initial focus areas of RNM the near-term RNM framework elements, 
proposed roles and committee composition, as well as the performance and long-term evolution of the RNM. So starting with the mission and vision statement up on the slide, these provide an anchor for the framework and are the highest level guiding principles to keep in mind. So the mission or core purpose of the RNM is to drive transformative improvements in the customer experience for Bay Area regional transit. And the vision or why the RNM exists is to advance regional goals in equity, livability, climate, and resiliency through a unified regional transit system that serves all Bay Area populations. So the RNM focus is centered on delivering operational changes that would directly benefit present as well as future customers. Uh, and so an initial set of focus areas for RNM have been identified as fare integration, mapping and wayfinding, accessibility, bus transit priority, rail network management, and connected network planning. So it is not a coincidence that the regional network management framework was built to address the same customer-focused action plan initiatives that are shown on here because the Blue Ribbon Task Force consensus uh, was that these are the highest priorities for better serving both our current riders and attracting additional riders. And within these focus areas, there are aspects that are best managed at a le regional level and others that would continue to be locally managed. And this slide provides a high-level overview of the regional role within these functional areas. So some key themes here uh, across these functional areas are around the regional entity setting the vision, developing regional policies, making select funding decisions, creating implementation plans, and maybe even implementing regional programs as needed with the help of coordinating stakeholders. So I'll move on to the next slide. Um, so this is moving into the sort of the near-term elements that make up the regional network management framework. And the recommendation was that it would need three key elements to be successful. One is a regional visioning element, a steering element, as well as an administrative or operational element. So the regional visioning element would set a strategic vision for regional transit, ensure customer outcomes, and be accountable for regional transit network policy and priorities. And this would be comprised of the MTC R&M committee, a committee of the commission, as well as a customer advisory committee, which would be a group of stakeholders who represent the customer. And we can go into that in a little more detail on the next slide. But um, continuing on this slide, where the regional visioning element determines what needs to be done, the steering element would determine how it will be done. And based on the vision set by the visioning element, the steering committee would develop and reach consensus on policy recommendations as well as guide the administrative or operational element on execution. And this would be comprised of the RNM council made up mostly of general manager level operator representatives. Now the administrative or operational element will provide a dedicated staff and tools to enable execution and help support the day-to-day -day operations of the RNM. Now, just a quick note here that most of these are to a degree uh, shared roles and responsibilities. For example, policy might be initially set via vision at the highest level, but the other two areas below would necessarily provide feedback and actual clarity through uh, execution. So on the next slide, um, I have a visual representation of the proposed roles and committees that make up the various elements of the RNM that we had gone over on the previous slide. And this is what constitutes the near-term regional network management framework. So the visioning element um, 
that we discussed on the previous slide will be comprised of the MTC R&M committee on here, as well as the customer advisory committee. Uh, again, as I mentioned, the customer advisory committee would be that group of stakeholders who represent the customer and can help inform decision making with the customer in mind. Uh, in the middle here is the R&M council, which is essentially playing the role of the steering committee. And this will uh, likely be a combination of MTC representatives but mostly general manager level operator representatives who understand transit operations and can provide leadership and critical input on regional policies. Um, the administrative or the operational element uh, is made up of the dedicated RNM support staff shown on the right, as well as the task forces and subcommittees at the bottom of the slide here. And this will provide dedicated staff and capacity to enable execution and help support the day-to-day -day operations of the RNM. Now, one thing to note here is that at its core, the RNM structure achieves the three check marks that are shown here on the, on the right. And these were the guiding principles that we had kept in mind as we were designing this framework. This is around the RNM framework being customer focused, being structured for scale, and balancing short term momentum with long term transformation. And then the, the next slide is the final slide on the regional network management framework. And so here, finally shifting focus to the performance and long-term evolution aspect of the RNM framework. This is an important element of the framework as it's essential to understand how well this framework is functioning and whether it's achieving the outcomes we set out to achieve. And then also ensuring that the framework is continuously improving and meeting the evolving needs and demands of regional transit. So as we considered standing up this RNM framework in the short term, we are keeping its evolution towards the long term clearly in focus and as something that can evolve over time in response to on the ground targeted feedback. So this framework establishes performance monitoring and recurring reviews to drive this continuous improvement and evolution. Um, as you can see with the stair slide shown here, and this is illustrative at this point, obviously. Uh, we also plan to use key performance indicators to assess both the benefits for riders and customers, as well as um, the structure's uh, performance itself in terms of operational efficiency. So essentially, the RNM needs to demonstrate benefits for riders and customers, as well as be um, effective and efficient. So in, in summary, this framework will help us make improvements quickly where needed while also establishing that long-term organization and accountability. And then I'll, on the next slide, I'll close with a quick overview of timeline and next steps. The RNM framework recommendations were presented to the MTC Commission in January for review and feedback and in February for action. And on Feb 22nd, uh, less than a week ago, the MTC Commission approved policy support for the RNM framework recommendations. Uh, an RNM implementation plan to guide important activities to stand up the near term RNM will be developed and brought forward for commission consideration and approval. Uh, the timing may shift a little bit, um, just given that it would be subject to the involvement of the new MTC executive director, as you heard today. Uh, but note that staff plans to continue to engage with transit agency boards and provide information about the implementation plan going forward. And finally, I'd like to close um, with uh, just mentioning a couple of the highlights of the framework. So the highlights here are that it provides, this framework provides a dedicated staff and forum 
to address regional transit where there was none before, and it empowers a decision-making structure that leverages the existing authorities of the MTC Commission as well as the individual transit agencies to implement needed customer improvements quickly. Uh, it, moreover, it harnesses the expertise and formalizes coordination of the transit general managers and elevates the voice of the customer and its importance throughout the framework. And finally, as you saw on a previous slide, the near-term structure also provides the flexibility to evolve and strengthen over time, allowing the commission to understand what works well and what changes may be needed as we navigate the years ahead. And with that, happy to answer any questions. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I want to just, um, I see Commissioner Melgar on the queue, in the queue, but I just want to um, uh, thank uh, MTC Commissioner Ronan for um, her work um, on the MTC. Um, if there's anything you want to say, or good, okay. Uh, Commissioner, Ronan, uh, com uh, Commissioner Melgar. Uh, thank you, Chair Mandelman, and also uh, thank you, uh, Commissioner Ronan, because uh, you've done heavy lifting in the last uh, few weeks. I wanted to, I just had a question, uh, your presentation, thank you so much uh, for the thoroughness of both your presentations. Um, in the chart that you had about the operationalizing of the RNM, the last step was to strengthen governmental authorities to, um, you know, implement some of these changes. I'm wondering what that means and what exactly the MTC's role will be in that. If you can explain what the plan is, I'd appreciate it. Sure. Would you like us to bring up that slide? Um, if if you need to, I don't. <laughs> it's, um, oh, that, there you go. Perfect. Thank you. Carbon authorities wheel. What does that mean? So this is essentially um, so. You know, this framework establishes performance monitoring and recurring reviews to drive this evolution. So essentially, at the outset, as we stand up the RNM, we're going to have two buckets of KPIs. One to, um, so one set of KPIs is around figuring out whether we are achieving the benefits for the riders and customers that we set out to achieve, number one. So number two is around whether this structure itself is operationally efficient and effective, cost efficient, because that's, that's really important. And then as we measure these KPIs, we start getting a sense from once we start implementing it around how the framework itself is performing and where the gaps are in trying to achieve those outcomes that you saw on a previous slide around fair policy, mapping and wayfinding, uh, accessibility, bus transit priority, those kinds of things. So if we are able to achieve those outcomes, we are doing great. If, if not, there are some gaps that will become uh, quickly apparent, uh, I'm hoping, and those gaps could be in a, in a bunch of areas. One could be around maybe uh, leadership. There is more leadership needed at the regional level. Maybe we need to scale up some of these roles because right now we are looking at the RNM as having four key people. One is a director of RNM operations and four key staff. So maybe we need to staff up. So that could be one area. The other area is maybe we need um, better regional tools for that consistency of framework. Maybe through a technological perspectives or, or policy tools. The other area could be we need to refine processes and maybe enhance incentives for all the transit operators to get behind some of this. And then finally, if we are realizing that all of these things are not working, maybe we need more authority that the RNM needs, which will need to be, you know, which we'll need to work towards. So there could be a bunch of ways in which we could improve the evolution. So, you know, as we as we you know learn from how we are doing on the ground, we would need to understand where the gaps are and understand what would help us in closing those gaps. 
Thank you, uh, thank you, Commissioner Melgar. Um, I, I guess the, the the question that I have, um, you know, we, there's certainly what, thank you for the work, um, and clearly there's a need for greater uh, and the great opportunities for more collaboration across the region. Um, the concern that I have heard and that I'm curious about are sort of the unintended consequences, and particularly as we get into sort of conversations about fares, um, because there's different subsidy policies uh, and investment levels in public transit across local jurisdictions in the region. And I think, um, you know, I would hope to ensure that the work proceeds in a way that causes no harm to operators and jurisdictions that have chosen to invest significantly in transit capital infrastructure and operations. Um, and as an example, if the region were to decide to pursue a common regional free transit for youth program, um, new revenues would be needed to support that program. Um, and the concern is, you know, how, how would that funding get allocated? Um, the distribution of that funding should not um, go to support free uh, transit for use. The, the distribution of the funding, we wouldn't want it just going to the jurisdictions that have already not um, invested in that. And so figuring out how to account for investments that jurisdictions are already making mm -hmm. either, you know, uh, through, through their general funds or otherwise, how are you all thinking about, you know, addressing the differences across the region where the different agencies are funded differently, think about fair structures differently, um, and have set them very differently, and, and they continue to have different priorities around that? Yeah, absolutely. So thank you for that question, uh, Chair. Um, so note here, one thing I'd like wanted to note at the outset is that this effort is about regional transit management um, and that local services will continue to be or continue to remain fully managed by the communities served by the local agencies. So one good example of the kinds of regional coordination and customer-facing elements that we are trying to achieve, as you mentioned, was the, is the fair integration work. Or take, uh, for example, the Clipper Start work, where instead of riders going to each agency to sign up and be eligible for discounts, they can sign up once. So that's a good example of an initiative where operators have come together with MTC for the good of the rider and customer. And we're trying to do more of that under this framework. So essentially more one-stop opportunities for Bay Area riders to get benefits. And, and the, I guess the goal here that I would like to reiterate is, is that it is to enhance the transit experience and not harm it. And we would not want investments made to enhance regional transit connectivity and customer experience to result in any sort of um, service cuts that riders depend on. So th this effort is mainly around filling important gaps in regional transit and not about impacting uh, local services. And to but your other question about the funding, uh, Chair, uh, we, we are, so the way we are thinking about this is that so establishing this framework at the very least would coordinate the customer-facing elements or operations of the, of the region's transit agencies while allowing those agencies to maintain their individual sort of models and autonomy. And, and by specifically coordinating these customer-facing elements, schedules, mapping and wayfinding, fair policy, customer information, we are hoping that this can make traveling across the region easier and more convenient for all riders. And if, if that happens, if transit becomes more convenient and appealing to a broad base of customers, uh, ridership would increase, leading to subsequently more money for transit operations. So that's how we're also thinking about it. And also that this could attract additional funding in terms of a new measure if we can show improvements to taxpayers or, or even a path to get there. Um, 
yeah, and plus we could be more coordinated and strategic around funding advocacy through an RNM. If I could add just two things. Yeah. Um, one is that um, one of the levels of the framework, the one that's the steering element that includes the representation from all the general managers, I think that's a really important one where the sort of agency-specific context about like an example like fair policy like you provided would be raised. And you know what, what we've found when we've had these weekly meetings over some time is that the GMs are really good at reaching consensus and understanding the difference. Of course, that's not always going to be the case, and that's where there's these other you know, levels in the, the framework as well. Um, and then the second thing I'd note is that um, ultimately any fair policy um, decision is also a decision about an agency's operating budget, and the agency's operating budget is still something controlled at, at that agency. So I think I think the point, the question you're asking is a good one in that if it relates to a new funding source, that's really where like it's a hot topic of let's make sure this is equitable um, from a lot of different perspectives. Um, but I think those are sort of two different um, checkpoints to prevent us from going in the wrong direction or in a direction that's less good for San Francisco. And, and I'd like to add, Chair, and that was an excellent question. Thank you again. So the fair integration example that you take up is a classic example where um, if you look at the business case, it did acknowledge that a regional approach to maybe transfers makes a lot of sense, um, whereas a regional entity maybe dictating the fair setting by a local operator does not make as much sense. So there would be th that sort of analysis that goes into these decisions as well. Yeah, thank you. Um, all right, let's open this to public comment. Uh, if there are any members of the public in the chamber who would like to speak to us about item 10, please come forward. And if there are none, which it appears to be the case, let's see if there are there's any remote public comment on item 10. Checking for public comment on item 10. There are two callers. Great. Caller number one, your two minutes begins now. Okay, this is a very complicated uh, subject. And uh, in order to address it, you cannot give public comment in two minutes. So I'll keep it very simple. Have we done a needs assessment on BART? BART is suffering today from ridership. In San Francisco, we have areas like the Jackson 3 Unibus that is not running, impacting the seniors. At the same time, we have the director of the San Francisco County Transportation Authority talking about an electric bus at the Presidio. When we, when we could have used those type of buses here in San Francisco. We cannot be talking about a regional network management if we do not have the ability to do a sound needs assessment. And as has been pointed out, we have very, very poor leadership. We have a Trumlin here who used to work in Alameda we had another person here who used to work in San Francisco, now works in Alameda. Our leadership is very poor. Do we have another caller? 
Okay, that, I wasn't sure if that was the end. Thank you, caller. Uh, yes, we have one more caller. Thank you, caller. Your two minutes begins now. Um, thank you, uh, Chair Rafael Mandelman. Alita Dupree, for the record, my pronouns are she and her. Uh, this is really important, and I've been going to a number of these meetings. And I believe there is a premise for uh, network management, being able to have uh, consistency. Okay, I had some kind of sound there. Uh, about having consistency across the board. Uh, because when I use uh, transit in the Bay Area, it's very regional. And I'm very interested in the wayfinding, uh, having consistent signage. Um, uh, if, if you go to New York City, right on their system called a subway, which maybe some of you have gotten to see, uh, the basic signage is pretty consistent. And at the same time, preserving uh, historical uh, markers um, because it is a system that has a lot of uh, tradition and history and artwork in it. Uh, but there are different ways to get around the Bay Area that often have disproportionate meet fare structures. And uh, I think that the, that the playing field has to be leveled, especially in bringing our most vulnerable and at-risk people uh, back on the system, people in equity priority communities we shouldn't have to agonize about overpaying for service. Uh, so passes and accumulators and wayfinding, especially for people with disabilities, uh, is very helpful. People with low vision and low hearing need to be uh, accommodated here. So I ask that you remember the regional perspective of this. In Denver, it's very easy. It's one system. We have a lot of work to do. But I think we're going to bring people back and get more money because of this. Thank you. Thank you, caller. And we have no more public comment at item. Thank All you. Right. Uh, public comment on item 10 is closed. I want to thank again uh, our presenters. Um, and uh, I believe that Commissioner Safai um, may want to acknowledge some guests. Asha. <laughs> Thank you, sorry. Just want to take a moment to recognize uh, the third graders that are here from Monroe Elementary School and the Excelsior. They wanted to stand up and be recognized. Woohoo! Stand up, stand up! They have an amazing teacher who always works to set up a little government and teach them about local politics and local government, and they write wonderful letters, and he teaches them wonderful things about civic engagement. So I just wanted to recognize Mr. Rosenberg as well. If he can stand up. Come on. Thank you. Okay, thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you, Commissioner Safai and Mr. Rosenberg and Monroe uh, visitors. Um, and with that, we will go to item 11, uh, Mr. Quirk. Yes, item 11, Transit Fiscal Cliff Update, BART, Muni, and Caltrain. This is an information item. Uh, and Director Tumlin, welcome. Good morning, Monroe Elementary School and members of the commission. 
thank you so much for inviting us to speak to you about the reality that we're facing with our fiscal situation. Um, as most of you know, when we developed our current budget, we knew we were in a time of unprecedented financial uncertainty, and so we planned for many scenarios as we were developing our budget. And unfortunately, each of our key sources of revenue at the SFMTA is tracking along the worst-case scenario that we had planned. Um, our new Chief Financial Officer, Bree Mahorder, is going to run through a brief presentation for you, um, and we want to make sure that there's plenty of time for questions given the importance of these topics. As I am thinking about these issues and planning for Muni's future, um, I'm always trying to keep our writers and customers at the center of our plans. 57% of Muni's, Muni's writers are people of color, and 70% make less than $50,000 per year. Even though our ridership st still is significantly below pre-pandemic levels, largely due to the very slow pace of return to office here in San Francisco, hundreds of thousands of people still rely on Muni, and our main lines that do not go downtown um, and where we've invested in significant speed and reliability and frequency improvements, um, they are experiencing uh, ridership at, or in some cases, above pre-COVID levels, in part because San Franciscans still need to take Muni to get to their essential jobs, to school, to the grocery store, to the senior center, and so many other things that they do. Muni remains a lifeline for San Franciscans, and we have to keep it financially stable for their sake, um, as well as for the sake of economic recovery for the city as a whole. Um, please uh, allow me to introduce Bree McWhorter, our CFO. Bree. Um, okay, excuse me, Chair and uh, Commissioners. My name is Michelle Beaulieu with the Transportation Authority, and we have a few introductory slides to set the stage for San Francisco Transit before we introduce all of our guests from BART, from Muni, and Caltrain today on this important topic. Um, so bear with me. Would you mind, Angela? Thank you so much. Um, so we wanted to start by talking about this context for transit here in San Francisco, um, and I'm sure that you remember before the pandemic, um, trains and stations were overcrowded, particularly during commute peak hours. Next slide, thank you. Um, and while San Francisco is only about 11% of the region's population, 67% of the region's weekday transit trips connected to San Francisco. Um, that's eight of the region's 27 transit operators that provide service here, including six of the seven largest, the exception being VTA in the South Bay. Those trips were being taken, as noted by Director Tumblin, by people working in and visiting San Francisco, as well as those folks working, uh, living here. Um, and they supported the city as the economic powerhouse of the region. Next slide, please. Um, and again, as noted by Director Tumlin, in addition to supporting that economic activity here, transit is really critical for low-income residents who are more likely to hold, be transit-dependent. Hold up, dependent. Ms. There yes. is a weird thing going on in the audio. Is there a way to turn off the shuffling noises or whatever's going on? There's somebody, there's a dial-in caller who needs to go on mute. Thank you, Director Tumlin. Thank you, Director. Can, can someone mute? As we run our IT department. How are we doing? We are not doing. Is that let's, better? Uh, yes. I think we're, let's give it a try. All right, please continue, Ms. Beaulieu. Okay, next slide. Thank you, Angela. 
Um, when COVID hit, public transit usage dropped precipitously nationwide, and as we all remember, nearly everything shut down. People were being discouraged from taking public transit, and yet people still need to take transit for essential jobs. Um, but as you can see in the right graphic, many of the folks who had an option to drive or take other modes than public transit did. Um, and because of this, early in the pandemic, um, the people who were taking public transit were primarily low-income transit-dependent folks. Next slide, please. Um, and we still see this trend today. Traffic on our roads and bridges have returned nearly to pre-pandemic levels. Um, we've been tracking this on our COVID congestion tracker, which you can see here showing vehicle miles traveled on the major roads in San Francisco. Next slide, please. And transit ridership really hasn't returned in the same way. So regionally, we're seeing only uh, about 55% of transit ridership compared to pre-pandemic levels. Um, and as noted on this slide from, from MTC, there are still a lot of people taking transit, and we know that they are disproportionately essential workers. They're more likely to be lower income, people of color, folks from disadvantaged groups. Um, transit agency staff are going to talk a little bit about the demographics on their particular services as well. Um, next slide, please. And while transit ridership is still down, it does vary across the operators in the region. Um, this data is a little out of date, but these trends are persisting. We're seeing that transit agencies that particularly served commute trips, um, like BART and Caltrain, they're really seeing lower rates of people returning to transit with the new work from home trends. Next slide, please. Uh, those work from home trends are very apparent when we look at before and after photos of our downtown. Next slide, please. And while downtowns across North America have been hit, San Francisco's really been hit particularly hard. We're the, the bottom line on this graph. Um, even three years after those initial stay-at-home orders were issued, San Francisco's downtown activity levels are at about 31% uh, of pre-pandemic levels. And looking forward, it doesn't seem like the work-from-home trends are going to reverse themselves in this city. The new norm seems to be less time spent in offices. Next slide, please. The slow downtown recovery, the slow return to transit, they're contributing to the significant financial stress from each of these agencies. Um, we've started to see these doomsday headlines, and if not for the federal relief funds, we would have been seeing these headlines much earlier in the pandemic timeline. Next slide, please. Those federal relief funds are running out for each of the major operators serving San Francisco, um, and BART, Muni, and Caltrain all anticipate operating deficits starting in the next few years. The total for just these three operators is over a $2 billion deficit in the next five years. Um, and, and this magnitude of a financial challenge is really going to require multifaceted, multi-revenue source, multi-year solutions, given, given the scale you can see by um, about fiscal year 2026, um, it's about $600 million a year. And to help us understand the scale, for reference, um, you know, the RM3 bridge toll is about $60 million a year. Caltrain's existing three-county eighth of a cent sales tax generates about $100 million a year. Um, and so, you know, this is really a significant financial challenge um, that will require multiple pieces to solve, but there's also more to it. We need to think about what post-pandemic transit services look like in the long term, too, with these new and evolving patterns. And uh, next slide, please. Why is this so important? Um, without transit, we can't achieve our transportation, climate, economic vitality goals. So, for example, 
as you can see here, transportation is the largest producer of greenhouse gas emissions in the city. Majority of that is produced by private cars and trucks. Um, transit is critical to, to, to meet these local goals, but also for the region. Um, you really, if, if you can't get San Francisco transit back on track, there's no way the region is gonna meet their own goals. Um, and even with partial recovery, Muni and BART are serving nearly two thirds of the transit in the region. Next slide, please. Um, and so with that, thank you for your time. I'm gonna hand things over to transit operator staff, each of um, whom has had board workshops um, on this topic already or have them scheduled. The Metropolitan Transportation Commission has also been discussing the, the fiscal cliff, um, the Bay Area Caucus. They, there was a special joint committee meeting yesterday on this topic and uh, Senator Wiener is chairing a special committee of the Senate on this very difficult topic. Um, so today is about presenting the facts facing these different agencies um, and then beginning a conversation about what comes next. So we do anticipate coming back to you all for more discussion about next steps for the region and here in San Francisco after today's discussion. Um, so we have Pam Harehold, Assistant General, Assistant General Manager for Performance and Budget at BART. We have Bree Mawarder, as you heard, the CFO at SFMTA, and Casey Fromson, the Chief Communications Officer with Caltrain. Um, and so we're, I'm going to start things off by handing things off to, to Pam from, from BART, um, followed by the SFMTA and Caltrain. Thank you, thank you, Pam. Good morning, Chair and Commissioners. Uh, Pamela Herhold here. Next slide, please. As Michelle teed off, the past few years have been a time of extraordinary change and challenge for BART and for transit in general. In looking at the graph on this slide, you can see that in April of 2020, ridership on BART dropped to 6% of pre-pandemic levels. In the succeeding years, we've seen ridership recover slowly as shown in this orange line. But more recently, ridership has stalled at about 40% of pre-pandemic levels. Despite our pandemic forecasts always accounting for some level of remote work, it is clear that the Bay Area is much higher than the rest of the nation. As you are aware, I know, the Bay Area lags other metro areas with return to office, with transit agencies that previously served downtown commute markets suffering the most. As such, we are revising our outlook, as shown in the darker blue line, down yet again, more, more lower than previous projections. As you, can, you will see later in this presentation, that has a very negative impact on our financial outlook. Low BART ridership also affects other transit operators. In the region, 90% of all transfers between agencies involves a leg on BART, and one out of every five BART riders connects to another transit operator. Next slide, please. In looking at the graph on this slide, you can see that the two bridges that serve San Francisco are back to normal. On the bottom end of the end of this scale is BART ridership tracking very closely with downtown San Francisco's office occupancy. BART's recovery is slower than nearly every other transit operator in the region and across the nation, with possibly the exception of Caltrain. And that is not surprising as 60% of all BART trips today begin or end at one of the four downtown San Francisco stations. Pre-pandemic, that meant approximately 250,000 people a day touch those stations. Also before the pandemic, our 400,000 plus daily riders traveled nearly 2 billion miles on BART each year. That's 25% of all passenger miles traveled on public transit throughout the state and more than 50% of all transit miles on transit in the Bay Area. 
obviously with car traffic nearing normal, our goal is to get these people out off the roads, out of their cars, and back on BART's 100% greenhouse gas-free electric-powered trains. In looking closely at the bottom two lines on this table, it is clear that the success of BART is very closely linked to the success of downtown San Francisco. Next slide. We have seen consistent ridership trends throughout the pandemic. Stations serving low-income and minority riders have generally recovered more quickly and more strongly as a percentage of pre-pandemic levels than prior commute-oriented stations. In the first year of the pandemic, some of our strongest markets were trips from Coliseum or Fruitvale Station to Powell or Civic Center Station. Data from these earlier surveys showed us that the riders that stuck with us throughout the pandemic were transit-dependent and typically essential workers. Now, in year three of the pandemic, we are seeing a recovery of commute trips, but at a much lower level. Nearly a third of BART riders are low-income, two-thirds identify as non-white, 44% do not own a vehicle, and for San Francisco respondents to our last survey, 62% say they do not own a vehicle. Our riders depend on transit. Next slide. Sales tax is now BART's single largest source of operating funds. It is projected at over $300 million in this fiscal year. Before the pandemic, BART's largest source of operating funds was always passenger fare revenue, valued at about $500 million per year. However, with ridership hovering at about 40%, that's nearly $300 million a year less in fare revenue, leaving a large budget gap. Sales tax has been a bright spot uh, for us and other agencies during the pandemic. After a brief dip, the addition of federal stimulus funds bolstered consumer spending and increased sales tax revenues above prior expectations. Looking ahead, we expect sales tax to return to lower pre-pandemic growth rates in the future. Next slide. The chart on this slide illustrates how our operating expense projections have changed from our pre-COVID outlook. The solid orange line portrays, portrays actual spending through fiscal year 22. The dashed orange line represents our current projections. The gray line is our forecast from 2019, our last in-depth projection before the pandemic. Because of the pandemic, we have reduced expense. In the first year, the primary driver was reduced service levels. You might recall that we closed at 9 p.m. and we ran 30-minute headways. We also moved some operating employees over to our capital program, and this was a good thing. This kept people employed and accelerated our capital reinvestment work during a time of unprecedented low ridership. In fiscal year 22, we continued to control non-labor costs and kept wage growth flat, but we also experienced continued hiring challenges, which also reduced our labor costs. While our actions kept expense down, they created other challenges, including hiring enough frontline staff to run our current schedule. Looking ahead, most of the space between the orange and the gray lines uh, come from more realistic hiring assumptions and scaling back our plans to increase future off-peak service. Next slide. On this slide, I'll focus on the detail of our budget. This graph shows where our operating dollars are spent to highlight where BART does and does not have flexibility in reducing spending. Starting at the top, allocations are shown in gray. 
These are transfers from the operating budget to do mainly two things. One, leverage federal funding for the BART system capital projects, and two, to directly fund commitments that we've made to our capital reinvestment work, including BART's cur current procurement of new rail vehicles and our core capacity program. In many cases, reducing or eliminating these allocations will jeopardize key capital programs. The bottom of the chart shows fixed costs in blue, nearly 25% of our budget. These are expenses that must be paid regardless of whether we run service or not to support our 130 miles of track and our 50 stations. The green and the red in the middle show labor and non-labor costs, which are mostly driven by service. The more service we run, the more costs we experience, uh, electric mat power, uh, materials and supplies, um, and also labor. And some frontline staffing can vary with service levels, but not all staffing, which makes these costs semi-variable. So the takeaway here is that a significant portion of our, fixed, uh, of our expense is fixed or fairly fixed. And like most rail operators across the US, service reductions will not lead to commensurate cost savings. Next slide. This slide shows our five-year operating outlook with the top half of the table showing operating sources, the middle expense, and the bottom net results. The figures in red are annual operating deficits. The forecast assumes modest growth in ridership, sales tax, and other smaller revenue sources, as well as small increases in labor and operating expense. Through fiscal year 27, the forecast does not assume any service increases. In fiscal year 28, core capacity rail cars and a new train control system will allow us to run more frequent, longer trains. And federal assistance will get us mid midway through fiscal year 25. That's less than two years from now. Thereafter, we are looking at some truly staggering deficits in excess of 300 million a year. To put that into context, the gap in fiscal year 26 is a third of our projected budget. On the, on the next slide, uh, this shows you what you just saw expressed in the form of our fiscal, run, fiscal runway. The diagonal line headed towards zero is our projected expenditure of federal funds. We currently expect to spend all federal funds by January 2025, and this is what we call our fiscal cliff when we go below zero. As I highlighted earlier, the lack of substantial continued ridership is what is driving this fiscal cliff. So just two more slides here. Um, we, next slide, please. We are doing everything we can to grow ridership and stabilize revenues because BART, like all transit operators in the Bay Area, is key to a thriving, equitable, healthy Bay Area. I need to be very clear. There are some very drastic actions listed on this slide. We do not want to do this. We want to do the opposite of what is listed here. We want to improve evening and weekend headways. We want to improve our stations. We want to decrease congestion. We want to assist the state in the Bay Area in meeting climate goals. And we want to ensure that across the Bay Area, all riders have access to clean, safe, uh, and reliable public transportation. However, the potential consequences of not adequately funding public transit are very significant. As you can see from this list, the impacts would, uh, would be very dr uh, draconian on riders, on mobility, on the economy, on the environment, and on equity. So next slide. Looking ahead, the question is, what can we do to grow ridership and balance our budget? First, I want to emphasize the staggering scale of the deficits that we are projecting are over a billion dollars through fiscal year 28. We cannot solve this problem on our own. 
With the region, we plan to and we must secure new revenues in the coming years, but we can continue our work to extend our fiscal runway. To do that, we are doing everything we can to limit expenses and attract new riders. In line with the Transit Transformation Action Plan improvements mentioned in the prior presentation, we have several wins already underway. We have fully deployed our Progressive Policing Bureau, um, which pairs non-sworn crisis intervention specialists with sworn police officers. And as touched upon in the prior presentation, this past summer with all regional operators, we launched the Clipper Bay Pass pilot, which is a single pass providing 50,000 Bay Area residents with free access to all bus, rail, and ferry services in the Nine County region. Users riding, users using the Bay Pass have increased their uh, transit usage by 40% above the control group of non-Bay Pass holders. Our fiscal year 24 and 25 budgets will focus on service and continuing efforts to bring back riders with investments in safe, clean, and reliable service, including a new deployment for our police patrol. We'll put even more officers on trains and in stations with more visibility to our riders. And with our recent dialed-in efforts on hiring, we can fully deploy uh, uh, we can deploy fully staffed cleaning crews with more frequent car cleaning and deep clean teams at high volume stations, which include the downtown San Francisco stations. We are fine tuning our approach to our strategic homeless action plan, which includes elevator attendance funded in part by SFMTA and SFCTA, additional support from the city for staff in unpaid areas, and we are also providing funding for restroom attendance and partnerships with service providers. We know our riders care about homelessness, cleanliness, and police presence, and that is where we are focusing our efforts. However, given our substantial deficits and the uncertainty of future funding, we will have to make trade-offs to balance our budget in the next few years. So that completes my presentation. I thank you for your time. Hello, Commissioners. My name is Brima Horder. I'm the CFO of the MTA, and you'll find that many of the points that I'll touch on will be very similar to those touched on by the other transit agencies because we're all, you know, facing the same structural challenges. So um, to move quickly and not be too repetitive, I think we can just largely say that when the stay-at-home orders happen, people stayed at home. And when you stay at home, then you don't need to ride transit and you don't need to park. And so that had a dramatic impact on MTA revenues. I think it's also important to note that we made a lot of policy choices to acknowledge the economic challenges that came with the pandemic. And we made policy choices as a city and as an agency to not increase fares. We didn't increased fares, um, the general fare, and we also provided a lot more discounts for our riders who needed them to acknowledge what an important role transit paid in supporting essential workers. Um, also, there's something unique about MTA that is not present with the other transit agencies, and that is that we have an additional revenue source of parking. So that we had two primary strategies to get through the pandemic. The first of those was to change our service planning so that our service planning was structured around the passengers who were riding, and also to make sure that we were providing reliable service by not providing service beyond what we could reasonably provide given the challenge 
challenges of um, keeping staff and labor um, up to the levels that they needed to be to provide service. Um, additionally, we used more of our parking revenues than we had in the past to support our transit ridership. Together, these two choices have allowed us to stretch our pandemic funding to um, support us through this challenging time where ridership is low and revenues don't match expenditure. But similar to BART, we expect federal funding to run out in 24-25, and that's when we begin to face really grim structural deficits. So broadly speaking, um, similar to the other transit agencies, transit fares are down, um, parking fees are Parking fees and fines and general revenues have recovered to close to pre-pandemic levels, about 80%, but um, that 20% is significant, and we're starting to see that flatten out. So we have to consider that we may be at a place of a new normal regarding revenues and that we need to start planning around this being the amount of parking revenue that's available. Also, particularly significantly for the MTA, because general fund revenues account for 38% of our budget in this fiscal year, the fact that general fund transfers are down is very significant for the MTA. And similar to other transit agencies, when our federal relief goes away, that'll be the loss of a very significant financial support. When you pair these decreasing or flat revenues with expenditures that are increasing because of the cost of living, which requires us to um, increase rate our labor costs, and as well as inflation, which increases our non-labor costs. Again, you're creating a structural deficit where expenditures not only exceed revenues, but revenues stay flat and expenditures continue to go up, creating a larger and larger gap between the amount of money we have going in and the amount of money that we need to spend to provide transit over time. So here's a graph that demonstrates where we are in terms of our ridership trend. As you can see, we have increased steadily over time since we began to reopen in April 2020, but we've really started to plateau at 55% of weekday ridership and slightly above that for weekend ridership. I think there's been an interesting trend um, where we're seeing ridership patterns change, whereas weekend ridership used to be below weekday ridership, we're now seeing that um, it's actually gone up in the on the weekends um, relative to pre-pandemic transit ridership. In terms of transit revenue, um, you can see that we have been recovering since the pandemic, but again, beginning around this fiscal year, we've started to flatten out. And so we are looking at a place where we are at 43% of transit revenue collected this year versus the last full pre-pandemic year at this same time in the year. Um, and you can see that transit fare revenue is slow to, slower than our ridership recovery. And a big piece of that is a lot of the choices that we made around um, supporting people, our essential riders who are on Muni by not increasing fares and by supporting discount programs. So this graph shows how critical federal support is to our budget. In the current two years of the budget, fiscal 23 and fiscal 24, you can see that um, the orange 
portion of the bar chart shows our federal relief, and that's what keeps our revenues matched to expenditure. When federal relief runs out in fiscal year 25, we drop down to $1.3 million in revenue, which is far below the $1.4 billion required to run the transit system. And you can see that revenues remain largely flat for the period of projection. So um, the general fund parking and transit revenues these assume some recovery, which may not materialize. So even these flat revenues represent some risk because we are still in a place where we don't know where the pandemic is going. So our five-year forecast, um, you can see that in the first two years of the budget, the years that we are currently in, revenues are matched to expenditures. And again, that's largely because of pandemic relief. However, once the revenue begins to run out in fiscal year 24-25, expenditure drops below revenue and continues to move away from the revenue line, creating larger and larger deficits over time until we reach a point of a $235 million annual deficit in fiscal year 28. So I think it's really important to think about the impacts of what this means to our riders. A $130 million deficit is what we're looking at in 24-25, and that means rolling back 20 muni lines. And um, I want to um, refer you back to the statistics that Director Tumlin provided at the beginning about how many of our riders are um, in a demographic where they don't have another choice other than transit. And for equity, and also for the economic recovery of the city, those transit riders need to continue to have service available to them. I think something that's also significant is that, um, as Pam mentioned, the fixed costs of transit are high. And they do not vary with the ridership that's riding. So if we want to continue to provide service to the people who need it because they have no other option, then what we're looking at is a higher per head per ride cost. And that leads to um, a structural imbalance over time that uh, is very difficult to modify um, with only our own actions. Um, also, I think I want to highlight the, the tie between Muni and the overall economic recovery of San Francisco. As the city's um, chief economist mentioned at MFAC last week, there is no downtown recovery without Muni. We cannot get people to their places of work downtown if we do not have a transit system. And so it's really critical to think about the micro impacts on the individuals who need to get to work by riding Muni, as well as the macro impacts of what a functioning and how critical a functioning transit service is for downtown recovery. Um, I think it's also important to remember that the actions that we choose to make today in terms of maintenance and maintaining a, a state of good repair have a really long-term financial impact. When we don't maintain Muni at a rate that provides reliability, there are two really dangerous trends that can happen. The first is what Director Tumlin often refers to as the death spiral, which is if we're not maintaining our vehicles, if we're not providing reliable service that comes at the time you expect it to with a reasonable headway, then people start making other choices around transit, which I think some of the data that Bart showed around driving in transit demonstrates. And when you lose riders from transit, you lose revenue, which reduces your ability to invest in the system, and it's a negative feedback loop. And I think we clearly want to stay away from that. And 
um, and an, another negative consequence is that when you don't invest today in maintaining a state of good repair, the ongoing operating costs increase over time, exacerbating that structural deficit where expenditure exceeds revenue. So um, to put a finer point on our muni demographics, as you can see from this slide, um, over 75, nearly 75% of our riders make less than $100,000, and 50% make less than $50,000. So I think that really drives home the point of Muni as um, being really critical to being an equitable city, and also really critical to getting essential workers where they need to go to complete the work of the city. So, um, of course, we have a multi-pronged effort to close this funding, funding gap, some of the items of which are in our control and some of which we need the support of the larger community. We are, like all transit agencies, sharpening our pencils and taking a look at our expenditure and making sure that the expenditures that we make are focused on reliability, security, and cleanliness and the, all in the effort of bringing riders back to the system. We've already begun to implement the budget off-ramps that Director Templin mentioned in his opening remarks, positions that were added to this year's budget in anticipation of revenues recovering. We will not be hiring those. We will, of course, um, be continuing to hire and hire aggressively to replace the positions that were lost through attrition during the pandemic. But um, as all of you know, throughout the city and throughout both the local and national economy, hiring beyond the natural rate of attrition is very, very difficult. And even when we have our pedal to the metal hiring as fast as we can, it's very, very challenging to hire beyond the people who are separating naturally for um, you know, all the normal reasons that people leave their jobs. So um, we've also, we're planning, we're pausing our plans to add back Muni service, and that's just to acknowledge the reality that we want, the service that we provide, we want it to be reliable. And um, when we are facing future challenges around revenue and current challenges around staffing, we want to be providing the service that we know that we can provide on a regular and reliable basis. Looking into the future, um, we'll be looking for ways to increase our parking revenues in the coming budget cycle, which for us, because of our two-year budget, will begin in 24-25. We'll be looking to increase muni fares to keep pace with inflation. Um, in the current year, we're beginning to look at ways to increase fare enforcement. And also, we're advocating at the local and regional level with our transportation partners for both um, operational, um, ongoing operational support as well as support for our capital program. And I'd be happy to answer any questions. Uh, Commissioner Preston. Thank you, Chairman Andelman. And um, I have so many questions, and I will not. It is 20 to 12, so we should think about whether <laughs> we should have further uh, presentations in the future on this, and I'm always open and to something. We, and we still do have Caltrain, but go Yeah, go yeah. It, 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 I, I just wanted to dig, dig in on a couple of things just to get clarity. That when, when I see this slide that says implement budget off-ramp, uh, can you just clarify like what we're implementing right now? And I just, just as context, I mean, the, the limiting factor on ramping up service has been our hiring of operators and retention and the number of folks we can bring on versus the attrition and the number of folks we lose, right? And it, it, while there have been projections of fiscal deficit in years to come, it has not been the dollars that have been slowing us or stopping us 
from hiring folks. So when I hear about implementing budget off-ramp and some reference to s potentially slowing hiring, if you could just provide clarity whether that's a potential for future years or whether you're saying you're, you're limiting the hiring in any way now. So to clarify, the current budget included a number of positions that were dependent on recovery revenues recovering. So for example, in my division, there are, um, if you get a parking ticket and that parking ticket needs to be adjudicated, you could have that um, reviewed by staff. If you disagree with that adjudication, you can protest it and have a hearing with an administrative hearing officer. The current budget included the addition of, I believe it was two new hearing officers to speed that adjudication process. Those are new positions um, intended to enhance the service that we're providing to the community. Because the revenues to support those positions did not appear, we won't be hiring those new positions. I want to contrast that with what we're doing in transit, where we are hiring pedal to the metal as fast as we possibly can um, to fill those operator positions. Um, our director of human resources actually provided data recently that showed that we've hired more people um, on average in the last two fiscal quarters than we had hired any of the previous six fiscal quarters. So I think there's um, a nuance between filling the existing budgeted positions to provide uh, the current level of service versus hiding, hiring into new positions to enhance the service that we're providing. Sorry, does that apply for in terms of hiring and training operators? Are we doing anything that slows that no. down? We are hiring as fast as we possibly humanly can. Thank you. I, I may have another question, but I will wait. Okay, thank you, Commissioner Preston. And now let's go to Caltrain. I will be very brief. Um, it's nice to see you this morning, Casey Frompson, Chief Communications Officer for Caltrain. Um, so I'll highlight for Caltrain something that um, hopefully everyone realizes that like BART, we're very dependent on fares. And so our, our ridership, when it dropped, and you can see here we went down to 2% of ridership at the start of the pandemic, it had a really significant financial impact on Caltrain. And what that looks like is our annual budget used to be made up of 70 4% from ridership fares, and now it's 25%. And so that, that is the biggest driver for Caltrain of where our financial challenges are. We did also receive federal funds that have gotten us to this point, and we are also lucky, and thank you, for, Chair, for mentioning it, that we received state funding that's going to help us with the electrification project, but we are also able to use some of those funds now to help on the operating side. So the numbers that you see down here, I'm happy to say today, at least that first one is going to disappear, and then we're going to have a workshop later this month with the Caltrain board where we're going to dig into the details of our budget outlook to see how far we could potentially stretch that um, into the future, but we, like the other services, do have an operating deficit that we're looking at that we need to figure out how to solve through a variety of different ways. Just cutting to the chase, what this means for the Caltrain implications is without additional funding, we have to make dis a difficult decisions on our workforce, our service, our capital projects, and our state of good repair. And this is not like my colleagues again have said, where we want to go with our region and with our riders and the people that work at our agency, but we need to make sure that we're being financially solvent and we need to make these difficult decisions, but we're hoping that through different strategies and support that we can continue to move forward and have a better path forward. 
So uh, we, asked, we were asked to highlight some of the, the things that we're doing at the agency right now to highlight our ridership and how we're trying to diversify our ridership. Caltrain has really been in the past a heavily commute-focused ridership, and so we're looking at making sure that we have a diverse and equitable ridership. And so you can see on the map here all of the communities that we serve. These are equity priority communities up and down the 77 miles of the corridor. And in 2021, we introduced a program that we're really proud about. So some of the extra passes that our employers weren't using, they did donated to community serving organizations that were able to reach out into the community and for individuals at no personal cost then had access to Caltrain. And we've gotten great feedback from this program and great statistics. So out of the people that are using the program now, 50% of the households make less than $50,000 a year and 50% are new Caltrain riders. So we're being creative and using the resources we have and the partners that we have to make sure we're building a system that's gonna work for everyone in the future and we're starting it um, as soon as the pandemic hit with a new board policy and then different programs like this one that's really making sure that we're gonna be a viable system for everyone. Uh, highlighting just a few of those action growth plans that we have, we revised our schedule. It's a standard schedule now, so everyone knows how to ride it. They can go there, read a very simple schedule. Um, deep coordination now, we have a good transfer at Millbrae. San Francisco, we're excited to work with San Francisco and our partners here because 40% of the Caltrain ridership touches the 4th and King Station. So we need to make sure we're doing everything we can to have a great connection there. You know, now that the Central Subway's open, let's make sure that's even more seamless, getting people to where they need to go. Um, I mentioned the GoPass donation program. We've done fair promotions. The customer experience, again, we need to keep diving into that to make sure when somebody wakes up in the morning, they think, hey, I can get on Caltrain, I can get on another transit service, and they don't just wanna get in their car. And so what are we doing to think about those people and what decisions they're making every day and making that as seamless and smooth as a process as they can for them. And of course, um, our big thing is what we're excited about is Caltrain will be a totally new system in less than two years now. Our electrification project, as we mentioned um, at this for just, just a few weeks ago now, is on track to be in service in 2024. And so we're gonna retire our old 30 year plus old diesel trains that still have paper signs on them. We're gonna have a wonderful experience for the riders. There's gonna be plugs, Wi-Fi, new seats, you know, even a baby changing uh, table in the bathroom. And so we really have a bright future. And this is something that we believe the region still needs for all of the, the reasons you heard from the uh, my partners here, but for climate change, for our jobs, for our riders, for our, our transit dependent, for just our quality of life, we need to keep these systems in place and Caltrain's about to totally change the system and so we need that additional support to make sure that our future and everybody's future um, is working together on this. And so I'm, I'm keeping it short in, the, in uh, order to make sure there's plenty of time for questions and, and um, discussion. Thank you so much. Thank you for that. I want to acknowledge and thank our Caltrain uh, JPA rep, uh, Commissioner Walton. And um, looks like Commissioner Walton has comments or remarks. Thank you so much, Chair Mandelman. I, and I don't really have a statement just about um, the report from Caltrain, but as we look about, as we look at all of our transit systems and the deficits that they're facing, uh, the decrease in ridership, I really don't see, uh, you know, any other savings grace than for our state and federal leadership to step up and support our transit systems. And so hopefully we're all working together to put something in place that really 
kind of demands that support from from these entities because you know those are, are going to be our, our saving grace options as we move forward and i just wanted to say that here and put that on record thank you commissioner walton um and Ms. Beaulieu is back Yes, thank you, Chair, Commissioners. Um, I just have a few slides to wrap things up, and thank you, Commissioner Walton, for that segue. Um, uh, also, thank you to Casey, Bree, Pam, and of course, Director Tumlin, um, because as you've heard, there are still a lot of questions out there about what the future of transit looks like, a lot of decisions to be made. Um, the travel patterns are still evolving, and we need to really understand how and where people are traveling and, and where they're going to be traveling in the future. The pandemic has really underscored that public transit is a lifeline for transit-dependent populations, and we need to make sure that we are centering those needs as we are having these discussions. Um, but bringing back riders who do have choices is important too, um, to help us achieve our climate and other goals as a city and as a region. We know that going forward, we can't rely heavily on the fares and other ridership-based revenue sources um, because we need to create a more sustainable funding model. Um, and, and that is all in the service of creating and sustaining a new vision for transit service. Um, so that more sustainable financial model will be um, uh, complex and, and have multiple components. As we mentioned, there's really no one single revenue source that can meet the needs of all of the operators in the region. Um, and there will likely need to be uh, state authorizing legislation, ballot measures, and we need a robust education campaign for these needs and a unified voice supporting transit agencies' need for financial support. Um, so finally, just want to talk about, you know, developing that new sustainable model and getting those new revenue sources in place. That all takes time. Um, and as you heard, these fiscal cliffs are hitting soon. And so the region is working on this five-year bridge funding proposal to address that near-term need, seeking bridge funding from the state. Um, MTC, along with the transit operators and the California Transit Association and other stakeholders, they're working on a proposal that has two components. And one would provide funding to agencies based on this need. Um, and the other component would provide funding for improvements to retain and attract riders. Um, you know, across the state, we're not seeing all the transit agencies hitting the same sort of financial cliff. And so um, this second prom is really aimed at broadening the coalition of support for a proposal like this. Um, as we mentioned already, there's already a lot of attention happening at the state. There was a joint assembly, um, a Senate transportation committee hearing yesterday, um, and the new select committee will be meeting soon. Um, because this is a really big topic, it'll take strong coordination, determination, creativity. Um, so we anticipate inviting these folks back to talk to this body as well as other stakeholders as we grapple with these big discussions. Um, so uh, that concludes my presentation. And uh, again, thank you to all our partners for making it out today. Um, thank you, Ms. Bilyeu. Thanks to all um, of our presenters and uh, Commissioner or Vice Chair Melgar. Uh, thank you so much, Chair Mandelman. So I wanted to uh, underscore the point that was made by uh, Supervisor Walton. I think he's absolutely right that we need help for the region. Uh, but I also had a question, uh, mostly I guess from for the um, uh, for Muni. Um, I think that um, you know we've been talking. I mean, the narrative has been about you know downtown recovery and you know uh, getting folks. To back to how the pattern was before the pandemic. I'm not sure that that's gonna happen necessarily, 
but life must go on. Uh, I wanted to point out as, you know, the District 7 supervisor that um, Muni also serves to bring people to places other than downtown, uh, and it supports uh, neighborhood commercial corridors uh, on the west side and the sunset in the Richmond, um, and also institutions like UCSF um, and San Francisco State University and City College, and that public transit is essential to the health of, of those institutions. So I'm wondering, what efforts can we make to increase ridership and also, you know, fares, um, you know, in collaboration with those institutions? So, you know, if people are not driving and parking, which is the default that we want to do, how are we working to uh, collaborate with folks to discourage the driving and par parking and also uh, assure them that the riding, taking BART to the Daily City BART station and SamTrans to San Francisco State is going to work and get people on time to class and also collaborating with them to make sure that you know, parking is not as affordable and attractive as, you know. So those are my questions, because I mean, just as D7 Super, this is happening in all districts, you know, institutions that are supported, uh, not just downtown. Uh, th thank you for that question, and I think it really speaks to what our service strategy has been uh, since the pandemic, is to think much more broadly about where people are trying to come and go, and to remain nimble to try to react to both emerging patterns and emerging needs. We have a great formula for growing transit ridership, and where we have executed that formula, we are seeing a tremendous amount of success. Uh, the 22 Fillmore is a perfect example of that. It was rerouted during COVID um, to serve the major educational and hospital institutions in Mission Bay. It was protected with transit lanes, um, and we're operating it very frequently. And as a result, it is carrying more riders than it did pre-COVID. Uh, we are also seeing similar successes in your district. So routes like the 28 line, which are carrying students and getting people to the mall and you know getting people to regional connections are where we are looking to invest service. But if we are not able to address these trends, then instead of us having this conversation about where we can react to emerging markets, we're gonna be having to have conversations about how are we going to eliminate muni lines while also doing the least damage to our core ridership. And there is no way to roll back muni service and meet our city's goals. We cannot meet our economic goals, we cannot meet our environmental goals, and we certainly cannot meet our equity goals. So we um, strongly agree with the points that you're making, and so many folks on this board have been supportive of the investments that we need to make transit successful. Addressing this very, very urgent funding need is, is our next ask. Mr. Preston. Thank you, Chairman Andelman. Uh, I, let me just offer maybe a quick observation here, because th this, I will say that from a, in terms of where we're headed, it's a very frustrating conversation, not just because of the dire situation that all the transit agencies find themselves in, um, but because of, I think, an ongoing problem that goes, that, that goes beyond the agencies responsible for 
for actually providing service and it is about our overall inability you know as a city and a region to really center transit and and public transit recovery and i appreciate the comments about no real recovery without a transit recovery. I will say like that's kind of a new chapter here, right? We did a whole economic, you know, recovery task force that couldn't even bring itself in San Francisco to include a sentence in a massive report. Couldn't even bring itself to include a sentence about public transportation. We hear virtually nothing from the mayor. We hear virtually we were starting to certainly uh, Senator Wiener's working on the money. Um, but, but I think we've become good at laying out like the parade of horribles, like what will happen and what the, you know, what will happen if we don't fund transit. What we're not as good about is treating this as like a non-negotiable thing and the way we talk about water, the way we would talk about electricity, the way we would talk about picking up trash on our streets, like it's just not an option. And we need to approach it that way and every leader in the city needs to approach it that way. It's not an option. So. I, I must say, I just kind of bristle at the, like I get it, and you kind of have to lay that stuff out, and you have to talk about the layoffs and the rolling back service and the fare increase and all these things that in a worst case scenario happen. But what I don't hear with equal clarity is like, I don't hear the demand. Like I don't, I, I hear like we're working on a proposal around how we're gonna fund this. I, so what I would respectfully suggest certainly to NTA, but I think regionally as well, is like, what is the clear rallying cry, demand, the dollars on it, who's gonna fund it? For someone listening to this, for a constituent of mine who relies on public transportation to get around, who they're told exactly what they should do. I mean, hell, when there was a two-week delay on the shared spaces program and just like structuring the details of the program, there was on every shared spaces table in the city, a barcode so that people who were mad that there was a two week delay in the discussion on that could call their supervisor, could rally, could make their voice heard. It was like a practical uprising, right? And here, people don't know how to weigh in. Like, I, so I just wanna say that, they, that the demand of how we avoid that parade of horribles needs to be very clear. This is, it is not an option. Like between federal money, state money, I mean, hell, we have, we have like undertaxed billionaires spouting off about San Francisco recovery who any one of them could write a check tomorrow instead of publishing letters in the New York Times whining about San Francisco, they could wipe out our five-year structural deficit on Muni with a check and they wouldn't even notice the difference in their bank accounts. So like, let's get real, like this, this is, these kind of cuts, I know you gotta do them, it's part of your due diligence, it's what motivates folks to hopefully pay up, but I just hope we can move into having a crisp, clear demand, support the efforts of our state legislators, and involve the public in a much more specific, and concerted uh, effort to avoid all these cuts and, and uh, get the funds we need and take all this stuff that's being, like, I'm just a little tired of the talk of layoffs, service reductions, and fares, as if that's the only way that we're gonna solve this uh, and, and let's have equal clarity on actually how we get the money and uh, I'm sure this body will be in full support. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Commissioner. Preston, um, uh, and thank, thanks again to everyone for, for the presentation.
Um, you know, I think coming out of uh, at least June of, of last year, I had some fear or concern that San Franciscans were just unwilling to vote for more money for transit. I think in November, we learned that San Franciscans will vote for money for transit if we make the case to them in the right way. And I think there are gonna be many competing claims on the 2024 ballots, but um, I think, you know, um, as uh, Julie Kirschbaum suggested, the goals that we have as a city as they relate to housing and density and equity and climate change and so many other and uh, so many other areas um, are are impossible to achieve without robust public transportation and I think it is incumbent upon the mayor's office and this body um, and certainly your agency of course to be doing everything we can to think about whether there is a path uh, to capital and operating dollars um, for uh, for the MTA and of course for the other um, transportation agencies that serve San Francisco. So um, we're losing folks. <laughs> um, we should probably go to public comment. Thank you. Does anyone in the chamber who'd like to come forward, uh, please come up and take your two minutes. Good morning, Chair Mandelman and Commissioners. My name is Sebastian Petty, Transportation Policy Manager with SPUR. Public transit is a critical for millions of Californians and its success and growth is essential to the state and the Bay Area's economic, equity, and environmental future. Nowhere is this more true than San Francisco, a city that both chooses and depends on transit like no other in the state. As you've heard this morning, the crisis facing transit is severe and systemic. This is not a routine downturn or a bump in the road. There has been an open-ended foundational shift in the business model underlying transit, and many of our largest and most productive systems are at greatest risk of devastating cuts. The path to a sustainable business model for transit will take time. It will require the coordinated efforts and resources of many tiers of government. The network management reforms you heard about in the prior item are one example of this process. But transformation won't happen if transit service collapses. That's why SPUR is part, of a civic, uh, is part of a coalition of civic groups, operators, and local government urging the state to provide near-term, desperately needed operating relief funds for transit. This funding is essential to maintain core services on our key local and regional systems, avoiding further ridership loss and the potential for a transit death spiral. We appreciate the Commission's engagement on this critical issue, and we urge your support in helping ensure that transit gets the essential funding it needs. Thank you. Thank you. Let's see if we have any remote public comment. Checking for remote comment. We have three callers so far. Caller number one, your two minutes begins now. My name is Francisco da Costa, and I've been monitoring transportation regional-wide for the last 40 years. I would commend the two presenters the first one from Bart, very logical, with very good solutions. Number two, Beltran. You kept it short and to the point. As to Muni, they have this habit of making things very convoluted. Muni should understand that when you 
spent two billion dollars on the central subway. It started with six hundred million, and you spent two billion dollars. That tells you a lot. So your presentation was clouded with so much of negativity and no solutions. So, Mr. Tromlin and Julie, you should step down and fade into oblivion if you cannot find solutions. San Franciscans are very educated, and we can find solutions, as one supervisor alluded to. Thank you very much. Thank you, caller. caller. Next caller, your two minutes begins now. Yes, good morning. The um, Caltrain presentation fails to acknowledge that uh, there's uh, corporate commuter buses that uh, plague our city here, providing free transportation. I recommend that Caltrain approach the thing, which used to be a Facebook, Apple, Google, and, and Facebook, to uh, get a bulk pass system where they would, uh, those companies and also any company down there would provide bulk pass similar to what uh, VTA does. Uh, it was previously the EcoPass. But uh, this would uh, create ridership for uh, Caltrain and uh, it's just sad to see that the culture of convenience of these corporations uh, impacts our environment and uh, they should be riding on Caltrain uh, for their trip down there. These passes could be for uh, use on the weekends also, uh, not restricted just to the commute uh, period. So uh, I think that needs to be uh, visited and uh, uh, continued on and investigated. Thank you. Thank you so much, caller. Next caller, your two minutes begins now. Thanks again, Chair Raphael Mandelman. Alita Dupree, for the record, she and her uh, very good presentations. Uh, I've been to a number of these, and it's not easy. Uh, and I think we have some very good people involved. I want to let you know that uh, a few weeks ago, uh, Jeff Tomlin really showed me a good welcome and, and shared with me about the importance of Muni. And I walked away excited about Muni, and I got on the central subway. So uh, there are good things going on. And I've met Pam Herhold and Julie Kirschbaum, and they have all extended me a welcome onto these systems. I do feel that we need to be careful with our language. I hear the, the mentions of essential workers. But what does that mean? And does that mean that others are not essential? Uh, I maintain to you that people like myself, who have profound disabilities, uh, my disabilities come from military service. That's all I'm going to say. It's just too hard. Uh, it is people like myself who are also essential uh, to the ridership of these transportation systems. Uh, that I pay fare 
And yes, it's reduced fat. But um, I, I ask that we make sure that we preserve our reduced fare options, even in this crisis, uh, because reduced fare is not a form of fare evasion, but it is a recognition of our unique and specific needs. Uh, so uh, I look forward to continuing to use these systems. Uh, and, and just as uh, Jeff Tumlin has shown me a true welcome as the person that I am, and I hope that Jeff will have many years uh, of running Muni as long as he wants, I ask that you embrace the idea that all people are essential uh, in funding these systems so they will be around for the future. Thank you. Thank you so much, caller. Next caller, your two minutes begins now. Um, good morning, um, Commissioners. Um, Brown, San Jose, thank you for the opportunity. Um, I would like to touch on a couple of issues which precipitated Caltrain's fiscal, fiscal cliff. First, Caltrain made a decision to spend $100 million. Sounds like we lost our caller. Oh, okay. Caller, are you there? Can you hear me now, please? Yes, yes. Okay, thank you. First, Caltrain made a decision to spend $100 million a year in COVID relief funds to operate more trains than, than ever. The end result was a drop in ridership, including one train reported as carrying a grand total of three passengers at the time of an incident last year. Last but not least, there is a massive evidence that the Caltrain operator is not enforcing fair collections from passengers who do, do not tag their clipper card. The end result is that Caltrain is reporting ridership much lower than actual because they use clipper and ticket sales to um, report ridership. In closing, Caltrain needs additional oversight before we approve additional funding. Thank you. Thank you so much, caller. And we have no more public comment for this item. Thank you. All right. Public comment on item 11 is closed. Thanks again to all of our presenters. And uh, Mr. Clerk, can you please call item 12? Yes. Item 12, introduction of new items. This is an information item. I do not see anyone in the queue. Uh, so can you please call item 13? Item 13, public comment. Uh, if there's anyone in the chamber who'd like to speak to us on a matter under general public comment, please come forward. If not, let's see if we have any remote public comment on item 13. Yes, checking for remote public comment. We have two callers. Caller number one, your two minutes begins now. Uh, thanks again, uh, Chair Rafael Mandelman. Alita Dupree for the record, she and her. Uh, good meeting today. Got a lot of work done. Learned lots of new things. As I speak uh, generally, I, I hope to be in San Francisco again soon, uh, waiting for the rain to break. And I, I think that San Francisco transportation uh, needs to be mindful of diversity in many ways. Um, the Central Subway, uh, it's a very expensive project. But I got to use it, and 
I found it was a very valuable service to me. Uh, and I found it for myself as a person of equity priority community, uh, that it helped to include me more in being able to navigate this city of San Francisco. So I think there is a place for big signature projects. And once we get through to them, I, I enjoy them going forward and I don't look back. And we have Grand Central Madison in New York City just opened up. Um, and uh, this pen access that's supposed to go into construction in New York City. But also it's, it's the um, things that we may not think of so much. Uh, like Clipper, you know, we, we have to incentivize use of Clipper. It's the most efficient way to collect money. Lots of people in equity priorities are using it, and uh, I think anybody can learn how to use it. And I ask that we uh, be grateful. Seconds, caller. You know, when I am in San Francisco, I spend money, and you get some sales tax. Uh, when I get into an electric ride share, you get TNC tax. I ask that you accept that money from me through the tax system to help these services. Let's not fight the hand that feeds you. Thank you. Thank you very much, caller. Um, next caller, your two minutes begins now. Hello, this is Anastasia Yovanopoulos, and I hope this isn't the last remote public comment I can give. Uh, hopefully, we'll continue with remote public comments, especially in transportation. People have to call in from all over, and you need to get our feedback. Um, so uh, one thing I'll have to say is you have to take into consideration that there's less population in the city. So many people have left the city. So you're, you're looking for revenue, you're looking for fares, you're looking to increase. Let's, let's take into consideration that things have been scaled back and we still have to meet the demands. Thank you. Thank you, caller. And we have one more caller on the line and your two minutes begins now. Hello again, supervisors. Uh, thanks again, Roland Brun, San Jose. Um, I would like uh, to take this opportunity to give kudos to staff who have raised the bar of public participation during CAC meetings through real-time access via Zoom, including a countdown clock to time a remote public comment. In closing, I'm wondering if it would be possible to add links to CAC video recordings and the transcript to the agenda after the meeting. Thank you. Thank you for your pub. Uh, thank you for your comment. And we have no further public comment on this item. All right. Public comment on item 13 is closed. Mr. Clerk, can you please call item 14? Item 14, adjournment. We are adjourned.